Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Courtney Rose. Courtney is in the midst of an incredible run at Google, nearly 17 years. She is the vice president of the services sector, and we're going to dig into what that means. It means a lot of things, as I've learned already, Courtney. And uh, we are thrilled to have you here. So a hearty welcome to Great Minds. Thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be here. Okay. So... Courtney, there's lots of places to start with you going back to Wake Forest and, you know, early days. And I, I want to talk about the groundbreaking work that you did, really the first of its kind digital first campaign around healthcare in America years ago. So I'm just tipping you now where we're going to go. But I want to start with a piece that you wrote fairly recently, breaking down the real essence and definition of a headline that is thrown about like crazy in today's world, digital transformation. But I think few really understand what that means. And it's almost become a trite expression that people use to cover up a lot of stuff that may or may not be happening. You're one of few who has sort of deep insights into what that really means. So I'd love to start and break down that recent piece that you wrote uh, around digital transformation and start our conversation there. Um, that's great. Yes, I think if we want to have the real talk, I think that term can be a BS term, if that's a official speak. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I think it's like any vague language, you can use it to hide something that's not good, or you can use it as a way to have shorthand around something that is complex, but really interesting and important. And so obviously, I would like to think about digital transformation more that way. But you know, digital transformation, just for the sake of digital transformation, is meaningless. It is ultimately about what is the business outcome that you are trying to drive. So if you are a company who's been around for 100 plus years, I used to work with the U.S. Postal Service. So, you know, what does digital transformation mean for them? They're sort of like the most amazing technology that was ever created. They can reach every location in the United States within a few days. I mean, it's kind of amazing. Like before email, I sent letters when I was growing up, like it's, it's amazing. Um, but what they need to do for digital transformation is very different than what Spotify needs to do for it or some, you know, inherent like kind of digitally native tech company. Um, but digital transformation for Spotify is just as relevant as it might be for the postal service. So it is about driving a business outcome. How do you market at the speed of a consumer? How do you have the data and infrastructure to be able to have a competitive advantage? So when we kind of break it down of what does it mean or what kind of path can you have on it? Um, number one, it is maybe getting outside of traditional comfort zones that you have as an organization or as a leader. So what are you holding on to for legacy or comfort sake that you might want to change? Um, it's absolutely about collaboration and working cross-functionally at your company. So again, like the way that you're organized right now was probably a decision made a year or more or a hundred ago. So how do you break down some of those silos? And even if you can't reorganize your company, you can still collaborate with people in other parts of it. So that is, is a big area, I think, around digital transformation. Um, and then the third piece is, if this is about real business outcomes, then not only do you need the C-suite involved, but you probably need your board involved to a certain extent. So who are all the different stakeholders in a change management process or in thinking about that ultimate business outcome that you're trying to get to, 
So making sure that you are thinking through that stakeholder map of which the board is a huge part. Um, the companies I think that we've seen who have done the best on digital transformation have thought in all those ways, like across silos and collaborate, but also brought their board along because ultimately digital transformation is a little bit more of a long-term bet. So you need the support of the board usually to, to really make it happen in a meaningful way. Okay, this is great stuff. And let's dig in a little deeper. And, and one of the great joys that we have at Advertising Week is the global partnership that we have with Google. And, and what I love about it is you always bring genuine thought leadership to the table. Uh, not a single word of what we just discussed and what you just went through has anything to do with trying to promote something. It's rather an mm -hmm. honest, really in-depth look at the reality of, of where we are. And, and that's what I, lo I love about uh, you guys in general. And I can already tell I'm going to love about this conversation with you, Courtney. So let's dig in deeper in the C-suite. There's all kinds of stuff that's out there. The t average tenure of a CMO continues to decline. One of the things that you've talked about and written about extensively is that dynamic between the CMO, the CEO, the CFO. Uh, there's an increasing uh, rise in interesting titles. You have now have companies that have a chief digital this, a chief transformation that, a chief innovation, something or other. But let's talk about that CMO relationship with the CEO, the CFO, and how that is so critical to genuine digital transformation. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I work in the marketing world. So when we talk about digital transformation, it's often coming from marketing because that is the part of the organization who is generally the most tasked with having a relationship with the ultimate customer or user of the products. So I think that's why digital transformation is often living or starting within the marketing organization. Um, but if it is just seen as a marketing effort, as we all know, marketing is often seen as a cost versus you know, the investment and, and the growth. And interestingly, I was having a conversation the other day um, with someone with a, with a CMO related title. And I was like, well, what do you wanna do next? And he said, well, there is, there is no chief growth officer at our company, but that's kind of what I see myself as now. It's not just about marketing. It is marketing in service to the business objective, which is growth. So it was like either change my title or I want to have a different org structure and, and then ultimately title that really represents what it is that we're doing. Um, so if you think about, I mean, at the end of the day, all of us are managing for growth in some way. Now, maybe, you know, you, you need more profitable growth, profitable growth versus growth at all costs. And I think we've seen a lot of the shift to that this year, but ultimately it is about growth. So the CFO cares about growth. Obviously the CEO does marketing does the board does, et cetera. So, you know, it might be different language at different organizations, but when you kind of start to orient, like, what do we all care about at the end of the day? What is that North Star? What is that business objective? Then you can start to value marketing in a little bit of a different way and see that marketing is a growth driver. So maybe you think of it as your CMO now, but really that's your chief growth officer. So um, I think that's where, you know, what is the, what is the point of that digital transformation? It is to drive growth. It is to drive that business outcome. I think that's why the CMO feels a little bit of that responsibility around it. But any CMO wants to be seen as a growth driver, not as, as a cost. Um, so, you know, figuring out 
how as a CMO, figuring out kind of how to frame yourself as that, how to use the right language with the CFO, how to have that kind of collaboration and position yourself and your team's work in that way. It's kind of the first step. Some are more successful at that than others. But if you don't see yourself as that growth driver, then no one else in the organization is going to see you that way either. And the stats from the recent piece that you wrote, no, I think it was a study that you did with Kantar, there was one that really jumped out at me, which was that only 14% of all companies consider themselves to be digital leaders. On the over-under, I, I think I would have lost that bet. That seems like an awfully low percentage. So yeah, so the 14% statistic is alarming, but it's amazing. And I do, I, I've seen this in so many different aspects of life and work in the last maybe year or two, where things are not going well in the economy. Things are a little bit more challenging in lots of different areas. And we might just be more willing to admit these days what's not going well. Because if we don't, then we can't get back on any sort of path to growth in our organizations or careers or, or however you might want to look at it. So it's a bit of a sobering statistic, but I love it because it, it feels truthful. And I think it shows an openness to understanding what digital transformation could be or just what do we need to do differently as an organization in order to get back on track. So it, well, while it's sobering, it's also a bit inspiring because it shows that there is some urgency around figuring that out. And suggests that there's 86% of ceiling ahead of us. Yeah, there's a lot of headroom in that stat. That's right. Yeah, yeah. okay. And beyond a collaboration within the C-suite, you also wrote extensively and speak extensively about flexibility as a big part of the secret sauce, if you will, for successful digital transformation. Could we break that down a little bit, Courtney? Sure. Um, I mean, flexibility, agility, like these are, these are all words that basically lead towards the concept of experimentation. So, you know, if I think back to like the CFO and CMO and how they're working together, the CFO needs to have some degree of appetite for experimentation. So how can we use our first party data differently or where can we invest in a different channel that maybe we haven't before in order to test and see if that is something that's gonna help our company grow. So the CMO is running a lot of that, but the CFO has to have that appetite that the CMO is, is hopefully kind of inspiring in that person. So when I think about flexibility and agility, it just means the willingness to test something to do something a little bit differently, to maybe measure it or value it a little bit differently, and to see if that helps you make progress. And if it does, then you adapt it or you adopt it as quickly as you can and then scale it. But without that flexibility and that um, appetite for experimentation, it's impossible to make any progress. Great, great stuff. All right, we started a little heavier than we do normally, but I, I think that was great and so timely. Uh, and I love the work that you and Google are doing on this subject, because I think a lot of people are not getting it right. And I think you're talking about what's real and uh, it's very well considered. Thank you. Well, there's what's right. And there's also just kind of what's right now. You know, what is going to work to connect with your consumers in this particular moment um, in a high retail season with the particular state of the economy versus what's gonna work in three months or six months, it might be different. So that's back to the flexibility and agility and experimentation. 
But then there are things that we know are absolutely going to work for the long term. So when you think about understanding the lifetime value of your customer and bidding, you know, in the digital media environment, bidding towards value versus bidding towards a click or to, you know, a single conversion, that is fine for now, but you want to always be on that path to growth. And part of that is, is always being on a path so that you can bid to the value of what your customer is going to contribute to your organization. Great stuff. Great stuff. All right. So let's go back a little bit. Let's talk about you. Uh, I love your uh, background and your Carolina roots at University of North Carolina and Wake Forest, uh, the Demon Deacons, I believe, at Wake Forest. Go Deeks. Uh, That's right. Uh, and uh, background in communications and journalism. And I know you also taught in that uh, area at Georgetown. But can we talk about how that academic background and your passion for journalism and communications in general, how that has sort of laid, and I'll call it an inadvertent foundation for the career path that you ended up taking? Yes. So I have a journalism degree, but as I joke to my husband, I write emails. I write emails for a living. <laughs> um, so th this concept is, is not used in the same way anymore, but back when I was in school, it was about integrated marketing communications. But it's the idea that all messaging, all touch points to a consumer, that consumer does not care if it's PR or if it's you know, a paid ad or, or whatever it might be. And I think we've just seen the convergence of all of that in digital media. And maybe we don't need to talk about that concept as often now because it is just so much a part of how we all operate. And for better or worse, all of the messages and content that are coming at us on any given day or in any given minute. Um, but yes, like it was, journalism is about getting to the truth. It is about crafting a message. It's about connecting with an audience. So how do you do that? And, you know, leading a big team, I have a, a huge team at Google who's all over the country and to some extent globally. So how I craft my messaging to them to inspire them or to inform them. I think I lean on my journalism roots for that. Um, and then in the industry that we're in, it is about crafting a message and influencing a population and trying to sell a product or trying to sell a message. So just that core set of skills around communication and frameworks and message crafting, it is just such a core part of anything I'm doing all day long. So I think that, you know, while I had no idea what my job was going to be, even when I was in graduate school, I do think that that background has served me really well. Even though we only write emails today. Even though I only write emails. Right. All of, all <laughs> of us, all of us, happily or sadly, all of us. Yeah, that's one of my big concerns. I know the New York Times is in the midst of some labor challenges. And one of the concerns I just have more broadly about society is that long form journalism uh, is really a diminishing art. And everything today is written for the short attention span. Uh, and uh, I happen to be a fan of good old fashioned long form journalism. Yes, I do too. There's also you know, I love paper. And so I, I travel a fair amount and my treat to myself in an airport is I buy the Wall Street Journal and I buy the New York Times print versions. I get my hands dirty. I spread it out on the plane and it's just such a delight. And I get it at home too, because I want my children to see a physical newspaper, not because I think that they're going to embrace it, but it's that it is not always about consuming content on a screen, as wonderful as that is, and like that's kind of the primary bread and butter of how we're all getting our information. Um, but I think an appreciation for the written word 
and some kind of demonstration of that. There's some hilarious statistic and like you're looking at my office right now with books all over the place, but there is some correlation of basically how academically inclined a child is to how many books are in their house, regardless of whether anyone has ever read that book, but just the physical representation of the written word as a demonstration of curiosity has an effect on children being more academically inclined. There's probably some way better articulation of that stat, but it's just always stuck with me. So that is why I have saved a lot of the books. And I think I've read some of them, but definitely not all of them, if I'm being honest about what's in my background. Um, but yes, I mean, I have, I have a deep love for the written word and I try to indulge that for myself, but also kind of show my children the value of that too. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I still will uh, carry around a big hardcover book with me on trips and people say, why don't you read it on the Kindle or iPad or whatever? And, uh, Cause I don't like to, I like to hold the book. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know if it's scientifically true, but I do think that you retain the information a different way. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of back to learning styles. And I think about that a lot with some of the younger people who are on our teams now, you know, they're considered like a lot of the training that we do is obviously all online. And it's not just like reading through to the main point, it's way more interactive and all the science would show that that is a better way to teach and to learn. But for better or worse, my style is that when I go through those trainings, I will go print it out and I will get my highlighter and I will go through. And that is how I need to absorb information. Um, my old boss joked with me, like when I really need to learn something, I will make flashcards. So my third grade habits die hard, apparently. Right, right, right. Old school. But uh, yeah, I think it's all back to what are your learning habits. But yes, I have actually, I was traveling this week. I have a hardcover book that I have been carrying around all week, but I still haven't opened it yet. So it went all over the East Coast with me, but it is still in my purse. So maybe next week. I have a flight to California on Monday. So hopefully, it's, hopefully it's I'll a, finally open it. It's a worthy goal. So you end up um, in uh, a company, I guess it evolved into part of United Healthcare, but you end up having an initial run uh, in the healthcare field. Uh, mm -hmm. Can we talk about that first gig? I know your first gig at Google was also related to health healthcare, but how did you get there? Yeah, well, so my dad, who is probably the best business coach I've ever had, um, he always worked in the healthcare space. And he did lots of different roles within that. So I think there was just like some degree of familiarity, not that I understood it, but just, you know, maybe some comfort level there. Um, so that was one piece, but I think there's always, you know, we're humans, we wanna have purpose in our work. And I do think that I was always attracted to that healthcare space because there is a certain nobility around it. You know, you're not just selling a product, you're hopefully doing something that is helpful to someone. So, you know, there are times where that might be a stretch depending on the type of healthcare company that you're working with. But I do think that in that industry, there is just a certain nobility around it. Um, my husband still works in the healthcare industry as well. He and I worked together years and years ago. And, you know, he talks about the same thing, like day to day, what might get you through is that th th there is some degree of nobility in that space. So I think that that was something that definitely kept me going um, when I worked in the healthcare consulting space. Um, and then when I went to graduate school, because I had worked for a while before I went back to school and, you know, you have to write the essay on what you want to do one day. And I was like, I wanted, I will be in communications related to healthcare and like some essay all around that. But the kind of that love of the written word, the messaging piece, but for some degree of the noble cause, 
was that that was kind of the North Star for me. So it came from your really from influence from your parents and your dad in particular, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, and my dad is still around and he's always interested for me to tell him about what's going on at work. And um, he doesn't give me a lot of advice, but when he does, I really listen. So, so, sounds like uh, that's a, a good plan for uh, any, anyone. Talk about that transition from consulting. You joined Google about 2007. Did they recruit you? Is there an opening, open gig that you went for? And Google as a company, first half of 2007, very different company from what it is today. It, it is a very different company. I mean, obviously by every number, it is very different in size and scope and all of those things. But, you know, I've never been bored a day at Google for better or worse. <laughs> like sometimes it might be wonderful to be bored, but that hasn't happened yet. Um, and it is, it is always stayed true to the mission. And I've done lots of different things over my time at Google. So I feel very fortunate about that, but I have seen how we make decisions I've seen hard choices that have come up. I've seen obviously the evolution of the industry. I've gotten this front row seat to actual digital transformation, but also the growth of Google. And I wouldn't be here if I did not deeply believe in the integrity of our decision-making of um, kind of the ethics of the company and then ultimately the mission. So while we might evolve what it is that we're chasing or how we go after it, it is still always, always been in service to that mission. So, you know, I was talking about healthcare, like I liked the nobility of being in that industry and I love the tech space. I think certain companies are, um, maybe have a better North star than others. And so I feel very connected to Google's values. And in my experience of seeing, especially how we've made some really tough decisions, um, I just have a deep respect for the company and for the leadership. So that keeps me around and, you know, I have three young kids. And so there is a trade-off of how much time I'm going to spend at work and how much love and care I'm going to pour into that versus what I'm doing at home. And I wouldn't do it if I didn't really believe in the company and in my team and what it is that we're doing. Um, so that kind of purpose-driven angle is so important for me. It's important for everyone. Like that, that's very much a human emotion. Um, but I think about that a lot. And your early work at Google, very tricky areas talking in the pharmaceutical world and the healthcare world more broadly about digital transformation in a very heavily regulated environment. Mm -hmm. And I know Washington DC has been a big part of your run at Google, but talk about learning. You were very young when you were doing that. How do you learn all that stuff? Like I marvel at people like you who can figure out not only the marketing and tech parts of our ecosystem, but also how to navigate, you know, what is the oldest of all old school entities in this country, which is the labyrinth of the US federal government. And you seem to have been able to figure that out dealing uh, in that Washington DC environment very, very early on. Yeah, um, no one has it figured out. That's part of the charm of the government. So there's that, but yeah, when I started at Google, you know, we're doing a lot, there's obviously search advertising and we were doing a lot of display advertising for pharma companies. And the way that, you know, you're probably familiar with this, if you say what the benefit of a drug is, you also have to say all of the ways that it could harm you as well. 
Um, and there's no way to, you know, the, the TV ads are 60 seconds or 90 seconds long and in a display ad on the internet, there was no way to show all of that. So there was a lot of work that was done with the FDA about what are the standards in digital advertising and it eventually landed, you know, back in 2007, 2008, where if all of those caveats were a click away, then that was acceptable. Um, but there was a lot of work put into, you know, what could the display ad unit look like where you could like scroll through all of that. So you didn't even have to have it a click away. So that was just like the very early stages of digital advertising and in a space that was highly regulated of how do you balance the requirements of the government, which are there for a reason to protect consumers um, and really important to get right with the reality of how the digital space and technology works. So, you know, there were fits and starts in that for a long time, and ultimately it landed in a great place. Um, so there's what the government needs, but there's also, you know, back to kind of the integrity around Google, just because the government allows it in the United States or any other country doesn't mean that it's, it, it's a Google policy. And I think that Google has been rightly so careful about, um, you know, what type of what type of ads that we will show, what sort of categories we are willing to let advertise on our platforms. Um, and, you know, those things kind of, the, the winds change from time to time on those policies. So we're always evaluating and reevaluating them. Um, but I think, you, you know, Google generally lands in a good spot about what is appropriate for a consumer. And as we build that Courtney Rose narrative, you can really see how things start to come together because a big part of what you were doing there, I'm going to imagine having worked in the public sector is they are even more sensitive to risk and to the PR pieces of policy than the private sector, more broadly speaking. I would think that early communications background and understanding it from that vantage point was a real asset to you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, influence and change management, you know, really helpful skills to have in business. Um, it was funny, like in the pharma space at that time, I can't speak to it now, but everybody wanted to be the second mover. They're like, we don't want to be the innovator. We definitely don't want to be the first one to try this, but we do want to be the second. So that was always funny of like, how are you going to get the first one over the line? And then, then much easier to get the second, third and so on. Um, but after I worked in that pharma space, I actually did do a lot of work directly with the U.S. government. So the U.S. government is an advertiser, a lot of public health campaigns, like to get flu shots and that sort of thing, um, recruitment for all of the different military branches. So I went from kind of working with the government on what are the right policies in the pharma space to working directly with the government for them to get, you know, the right messages out again, like a lot in that kind of public health space or, um, you know, getting people to sign up for Medicare online and getting kind of the government services out to the country. So, yes, I mean, having been in D.C. for more than a decade, no one completely understands all the charms of the government. But, um, you know, I had no background whatsoever in government or politics or any of that, but have kind of been immersed in that world for quite a while. Yeah. And, and I think that's an area that we don't talk about enough. Years ago, we had a great seminar on stage. We had Nikki Six from Motley Crue on stage with the Surgeon General of the United States. And it was around a government funded campaign around the opioid crisis. And that's what made it make sense to have it on the Advertising Week stage. But let's dig in a little bit deeper here. The government is a huge advertiser. 
and you uh, ran a lot of Google's business down in DC across a number of sectors, and you referenced some of the healthcare-related campaigns and all the ways that our business and the U.S. government cross over into each other's you know, daily lives, if you will. But talk about the government as a client um, and how you've really led Google's work in DC around that area, which is a very rich area that we don't talk about enough. Yeah, I mean, the government does, and you know, it's, it's obviously not political in nature at all. We've worked across many different administrations. Um, you're generally working with kind of the government bureaucrats, not political appointees. So, um, you know, I, I compare that a lot now to like what we were talking about in digital transformation and the need for the CMO and the CFO to work together. Those titles don't exist in the US government. So generally, you know, whatever their titles are or the way that organization is set up, they are there to accomplish a goal. So they're a bit less precious about, you know, well, but I'm the CFO, but I'm the CMO, and they are willing to work together and collaborate in service to a goal, which might be about getting out more flu vaccines, or it might be the Department of Transportation running their drive sober or get pulled over campaigns, if you're familiar with some of those. So I would say like, you know, perhaps ironically in the government space, you saw a lot of that collaboration um, a breakdown between silos because everybody is, you know, kind of mission focused or goal focused on what it is that they're trying to get done. So it was actually quite refreshing. That being said, sometimes hard to navigate to figure out how are decisions made, and there there is no one there with like real deep marketing expertise. So that was something that you know we were able to kind of fill in for them for a lot of those campaigns. Um, and then in working with on military recruitment, which is fascinating, a lot of times, like effectively, like the chief recruitment officer was flying a plane in Afghanistan six months ago, and now they're on this rotation in recruitment. So teaching them about, you know, what is the value of advertising? How does it work online? What does measurement mean? Um, you know, you have to go in and explain that in a way that this fighter pilot is going to understand. And it's, and it's amazing. So I think there's fresh eyes and a desire to get to the goal and a fresh perspective. Um, so, I mean, that was the, probably the most fulfilling work that I'll ever do in my career. Fantastic stuff. So I want to get on to present day, but let's just stay in healthcare a little bit longer. It's such an interesting, rich tapestry of, of topics. One of the things that comes up uh, when you travel abroad is the U.S. policy around healthcare, And most countries have a, I'm going to just use a simple word, a better plan than we do here. And uh, healthcare has been politicized in America. I happen to be a big fan of what President Obama did in affording so many millions of Americans who had no insurance the opportunity to have insurance. And I think to me, that's not a political issue at all. That's a human, a humanity issue. And I, I love how you've refer referenced a number of times to sort of that moral compass, that humanity of what you've been doing during your tenure at Google. But give us your perspective on US healthcare policy and uh, what comes to mind when the uh, notion of repealing it comes up but not once have I ever heard, and we're going to replace it with this. It's mm -hmm. just, that's bad, get rid of that, and no counter. 
Yeah, well, I am definitely not an expert on U.S. healthcare policy. My husband, if he was home, could just chime in for me on on this podcast. Um, so, you know, Obamacare created these healthcare exchanges, which are actually kind of an amazing example of digital transformation, because it was a way for people to go onto the internet to understand what their choices were, to navigate to the insurer who was going to be right for them. Um, when Obamacare launched, and we actually worked on the ad campaign to support it, if you remember, the site crashed on the first day. So perhaps your, your best sign of digital transformation is you're so good that your site crashes on launch day. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of people scrambling around trying to fix that. But yeah, I mean, I, I honestly had not necessarily made that connection before, but healthcare exchanges are a phenomenal example of digital transformation. And again, back to humans, once you're given something that's a benefit that really helps you in your life, you're not particularly fond of letting it go. So, you know, I, I live in Washington, DC. I am surrounded by politics all the time. I am not a particularly political person on my own. I mean, I certainly have my, my own beliefs and vote as everyone should. Um, but you know, I think a lot of things, whether you're in a corporation or you're in the government, they're political because you're trying to further an agenda that helps you gain power in some other way. So maybe you really care about that topic or maybe you wanna debate on it because it serves you, your agenda in some other way. So I think that's where people become very skeptical of politicians or of politics. But I would like to believe in, in being here in DC where there can you know, obviously be lots of skeptics that generally, you know, while there might be the political debates from day to day, that you assume good intentions and that everyone who is here and working in the government, working in politics is ultimately trying to make our country a better place, a safer place, um, and, and to kind of, you know, lift the, the lives and experiences of the people who live here. You know, again, you can be quite a skeptic if you live here, but then you also get to know on a personal level, a lot of the people who are in these jobs. And I think assuming good intentions is a good way to navigate it all. Yeah, I think that gets lost, that, that there's just a lot of people working in the public and private sectors just to make people's lives better on a day-to-day -day basis. So, yes. terrific. Okay, so let's segue into uh, the present day where you are cutting across B2B and B2C. You're cutting across a lot of industry verticals now that's a big evolution of a career that was focused more in the healthcare, more in the public sector, doing a lot of things first. That's my take, Courtney, on what you've done. You were sort of first there at the table for Google in a lot of these areas involving broadly digital transformation. But talk about the evolution of your role now running that services sector, which cuts across a whole bunch of areas. Yeah, so the services sector, I mean, it's a large portfolio of some of the biggest advertisers that we have in the US. So it is the apps world. If you haven't gotten your Spotify wrapped playlist yet, I'll just shameless plug for that. It's quite fun. Um, so it's the apps world. It's a lot of home service companies like storage companies and things like that. Um, it's the entire education space, both for profit and nonprofit. Um, my generally the background of my family is in education. So I have a, a particular soft spot for that one. Um, it's some of like the online publishers and companies that have really 
built themselves on the back of the internet to generate leads and help other companies be successful. So that is a really interesting space that I, I did not understand that much until about a year ago. Um, it's technology B2B companies like IBM and Adobe. So it is a broad swath of advertisers in all of these different industries. And like you said, B2B, B2C. Um, but at the end of the day, most of them right now are focused on performance advertising. So they, not necessarily e-commerce, they don't have a lot of retail in my portfolio, but there's an action that can be taken on their website that is driving some kind of revenue or profit for that company. Um, or it is some kind of acquisition of a user. So just the orientation is a lot around performance-based advertising, and then they kind of dabble in brand and consideration. And I think that's, that is the big opportunity is how do you understand as a performance advertiser that when you invest in kind of bringing a consumer down the funnel and, and that real consideration piece, not only is it gonna drive more conversions for you, but it might drive better quality conversions. So your average order value or you know, a lot of different ways to kind of judge on quality. So I think that there is we kind of figure out like what is the next wave of growth? I think a lot of it sits with helping a performance advertiser understand the value of consideration. And that is what is ultimately gonna find you new users. It's gonna convert more and it's going to contribute to the quality and the value of, of what's coming in from your advertising channels. Um, but, you know, this is something I had shared with my team yesterday. Like I am very much kind of this purpose-driven person and I had the privilege of working in healthcare and with the government. So I have seen how ads can get new voters into a political process. I have seen how ads can reduce the teen smoking rate in the United States. We ran a lot of campaigns with the Department of Veterans Affairs to reduce veteran suicide and you could see the data change. So not to say, you know, ads are out here saving lives, but to a certain extent, I mean, it is a message that you're getting to the right person at the right time to influence a behavior change. Like don't abuse opioids, don't smoke, but to do it in a way that is, is compelling for that user. So I have seen how ads, not just your media buys, but the creative piece of it as well, can make huge changes in, in a person and in a community. So I believe so deeply in ads and I believe in our products in order to do that. And now I'm in a space where are we saving lives every day with Spotify? No, although Spotify does bring a lot of joy to my life. Um, but, but I do think that in this performance space, they are reliant upon that digital world to find those users and to get those conversions. So we are helping build companies who ultimately serve their own consumer, who are paying their employees and helping grow those careers and ultimately driving the economy. So we want these companies to be successful because then they are paying their employees and then they are serving their users and then they are building the economy in the US and abroad as well. And a lot of our advertisers are global advertisers, not just in the US. So there is a tremendous amount of purpose now more than ever of figuring out what is it that we can do at Google to help this company thrive so that they are contributing to the economy in a productive way? So that is my purpose now and these advertisers that I'm working with. And they're again, they're kind of across the board. It's a really broad portfolio, but every single one of them is contributing to the economy in a pretty significant way. And it is our responsibility to help them continue to thrive and do that.
it's great, great stuff, Courtney. So uh, I don't know why this analogy just popped into my head, but as a kid, my grandfather would always take me to the Ringling Brothers Circus uh, right by Madison Square Garden, about a block from where our office is today. And the three rings were very famous. And you'd have the ringmaster referring to ring one, ring two, ring three, the three ring circus. You are a ringmaster of a different circus here and your three rings would be creativity, data, and measurement, looking from the outside in. Talk about being a ringmaster and balancing those both internally with your own team and externally for your clients as you help them fuel growth and really keep, as you just said, I believe it to be true, keep our economy going. But that's a, that's a, that's a delicate balance between those three rings. If you think I've got them right, feel free to tell me I got it wrong, but I, I think I got it sort of right. Yeah. Oh, well, I love the circus analogy. I've never thought about it that way, but I love it. But yes, I mean, even the structure of my team, it is about creative and data and measurement. Um, so again, like, you know, silos can be important in the sense that you have expertise in that area. So I have data scientists. I have people with, you know, the creative background. Obviously I have a lot of media focused people, but how do you bring all of that together to drive a business outcome? So, you know, there's all sorts of different studies that would tell you like what part of your advertising campaign is really driving the most value for you. So you got to get your message to the right person at the right time. But if your creative is not particularly compelling, then nothing's going to change. And if you can't measure it, then you can't prove that there's any ROI there. So then your CFO is going to cut all your budgets. So you got to figure out at this three ring circus, how do you bring all of those things together in order to have not just a successful ad campaign, but a successful business outcome? So again, back to always being focused on what is that business outcome that we're trying to drive. Um, but you know, I, that, that is something that even at Google, evaluating and reevaluating of how do you bring all of these things together, not just in the expertise of our own employee base, but how do you explain it in a compelling way to a client? who was trying to figure out on their own how to you know, bring all of those three rings together. Um, how do you then go explain it to the CFO to show that like it's important to invest in these data scientists because they're the ones that are gonna help us find more ROI in our ad campaigns or whatever it might be. So, you know, like any, any, uh, anything worth doing um, is usually pretty complicated. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of three ring circuses in our lives. I have three children. So that is a different three ring circus that I'm also running. Um, but yes, I think it's important for all those things to come together ultimately to drive that business outcome. Fantastic stuff. And just to wrap, you know, we talked a little bit about travel before we got on the air and you travel quite a bit. I travel quite a bit. Uh, talk about that, uh, increasingly public part of the conversation around business and that work-life balance has become a mainstream conversation uh, today in, in culture. But talk about that balance for you. You've got an awfully big set of responsibilities and a, a, an expansive portfolio, but you also are raising three kids. Talk about that balance. I imagine your husband's a partner in raising them, a full partner as well. Uh, but talk about that and how you sort of make it work in the day-to-day. Well, that's a great question. So when you interview someone with an answer, please let me know. But, you know, I got, I, I have been so fortunate to have so many amazing bosses and mentors over the years and a lot of women who were maybe in a similar life stage or, you know, similar values as a mom, but men as well. 
Um, and yes, my husband and I are in full partnership. We basically have a business meeting every Sunday afternoon about what the logistics of the week are going to look like. But the, a really great piece of advice I got is you're never going to feel balanced in a day and you're probably not going to feel balanced in a week. But over the course of a month, you probably can. So, you know, don't be so precious about that day because you're just going to stress yourself out that much more if you're trying to balance everything in a day. Um, but take that time to reflect at the end of three weeks or four weeks. And have you gotten the time that you need with your spouse, with your friends, for yourself, with your children, with work? And, and you can probably get to a decent spot. So I think broadening that time horizon has just mentally been something that's really helpful for me. Um, and then the other piece of advice I got was actually from the pediatrician for my kids. So we've had the same one for you know 12 years now. And she said, Courtney, the most important thing for you with your kids is never show them that you are stressed about work or that work is a bad thing. Be happy about it and then they will be happy about it. Um, and you know, share what you do. And I get to work at Google and YouTube, which are two things that my children are obsessed with. So I get a lot of street cred as a mom just based on that. But I tell them, um, you know, what I'm working on, or you know, I had to do this presentation, and so here's how I practice for it. Um, I will have, especially my 11 year old, I will have him sit with me and I'll like practice the presentation in front of him. And then he'll practice his that he has to do in class for me. So I just try to involve them in my work and let them see that it is a happy and interesting thing so that they are maybe less upset when I am gone. Um, and when I do travel, I, I, it, you know, it can be exhausting for sure, but you know, I believe in the purpose of the work. I believe in my team. So I'm engaging on things that are really good. And then I didn't have to pack three lunches and make three breakfasts before 6 a.m. So getting a break from that is not a terrible thing. Um, so I appreciate that too. And then thankfully either my husband is doing that or our babysitter has helped out a little bit. Um, but I just try to see it in more optimistic terms, but it's taken a long time to get to that place. And I would say, especially when my kids are younger, you're more physically exhausted. It was maybe hard to embrace that optimism that does come a little bit more naturally now. Sure. Well, as they get older, listen, I can tell you, my kids are 28 and 25. The job is not over, but it does get easier in certain ways. Certainly I'm not making lunches or my wife is not making lunches for a 25 year old. So, yeah, right. All right, well, I, packing lunches is honestly, I love to cook, but packing lunches is not my favorite activity. So, <laughs> you know, when I'm on the plane to California next Monday night, um, I will have to remember to thank the other people in my life for making the lunches the next day, but I won't be sad to miss that part. Great. Well, Courtney, this was an absolute joy. Thank you so much for doing this and I uh, loved our conversation. Me too. Thanks, Matt. Take care. <laughs>